Places marked the word of the Lord, chapter 9 and verse 1 says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them high on a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good that we are here? Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice 
came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly look around, looking around, no one longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they have seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does, not, uh, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Lord, we pray you speak to us through your word today. Lord, as the title of this sermon is, Transfiguration. Lord, that you would transform us into the image and the likeness of your Son. And we pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In Christ alone, my hope is found. In a broken and dysfunctional world, these words should ring true. And it doesn't take very much to, to see the shape of our world today, does it? So these words should ring true. My hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and He's my song. I mean, we sang about it this morning. The medley, I'll fly away, and the promises of our Lord. For me, there is no greater reminder of God's grace and God's mercy than for me to look back at my life before Jesus and come to an understanding. I stand here today emphatically saying my life, that I would be lost, I would be undone, and I would probably be dead had it not been for Jesus. I mean, that's not wishful thinking. I mean, that's not me wishful thinking. That is the most genuine reality that I can think of. Especially the lost and undone part. Now, last week we spoke extensively in the word in Psalm 34, verse 14. We spoke on the importance of living out our faith, but also living a healthy, out a healthy fear and admiration of our Lord. And how this healthy fear, reverence, can empower us to watch what we say, and effectively live out the good news. The, the Christ follower who is empowered by the Holy Spirit, it comes down to being disciplined and progressive sanctification. Now, today that word might scare some people, progressiveness. But in terms of progressive sanctification, which is a theological term, it simply means that during your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, you must, you will grow in Him. This progressive sanctification means that every day of my life, the closer that I get to King Jesus, the more I begin to look like King Jesus. Not in a divine way, but in a way, as we spoke of last week, be ye holy as I am holy. 
But this week, we're going to look at a little bit of this holiness in the transfiguration. In Mark chapter 9, as we have read, there are elements of the transfiguration that certainly has implication, not only for the risen Lord, but implication and application for your life and my life to be transformed into the image of Christ. We see Jesus transfigured, and we will see our lives in Christ transfigured as, as well. Transformed. So today I want to talk about two elements of the transfiguration that we read from Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. The first is the transfiguration of Jesus is a glorious foreshadowing. What is it foreshadowed to? What, is it, what does the transfiguration speak of the past, and what does the transfiguration say to the future? And the last time that we were in Mark, Jesus had forecasted his own death, if you remember. Not only his death, but he says, in three days the Son of Man will rise again. So he forecasts his own death and his resurrection. This is one of the most explicit places that we find in the book of Mark where he lays out that he is going to die and that he is going to rise again on the third day. He even tells his disciples, he even goes as far as to tell his disciples that after three days the Son of Man will rise again. But, as we have read, one boisterous Simon Peter, who I might say reflects many of us in many different ways, the boisterous Simon Peter wrongly rebuked the Lord Jesus, unto which Jesus replied appropriately so, what did he say? Get thee behind me, Satan. But then he goes on to say, for, why is he rebuking Peter? Because he says, your mind are not on the things of God, but are on the things of man. So he rebukes him. In these latter verses of chapter 8, we learn the value of rebuke. Now, I don't mean, as you recall, I did not mean that we go around and every time we, we, somebody rubs us the wrong way, we say, get thee behind me, Satan. Oh, we rebuke someone who doesn't have the same ideas that we might have. No, I'm not speaking of that. I'm speaking about a, a well-placed, well-motived rebuke. And, and in that rebuke from brothers and sisters, admonition, there is restoration. In fact, many times in the rebuke, we learn how to grow in our faith. If there's a person that I respect as a Christ follower that comes to me and says, Brother Larry, I don't think that you're, uh, you're doing this. I, I love you, but I think that we could do it this way. Or, Brother, I think you're in sin here. That's a well-placed rebuke. And so we got to learn. We have to learn from those rebukes. It is when we do not allow brothers and sisters in Christ to offer a well-placed, right-motive rebuke is when I found that we stay stagnated and complacent in our faith. So I hope you have people in your life who can offer a gentle admonition to you when you need it, as I do and others do as well. But then the Lord Jesus, He rebukes His disciples, but then He teaches. This is constant through the gospel. Rebuke, teach. Rebuke, restore. 
Then he moves his disciples to what I consider to be a very specific, special revelation. And by the way, Jesus is the special revelation, but he's pointing his disciples to a closer special revelation. This has got to be an awesome sight to behold. Have you ever thought about what these three inner disciples witnessed on the mount? Have we really thought about what they saw? But I've got to tell you, one day we're going to be face to face with King Jesus in all of his glory. And you know what? We're going to worship him too. Are you looking forward to that day? I'm looking forward to that day when I could worship the Lord Jesus. And I don't have to worry about wearing a mask. I don't have to worry about sanitizing my hands. I won't have to worry about social distancing from Jesus. In fact, I'll be falling at his feet and I hope you will too. He moves them closer to special revelation and and he said to them, I say to you that there will be some here standing who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And as you can imagine, there has been some debate about this verse. There's been a bit of disconnect on this verse. It appears many of the disciples had died before the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, or so it seems. So we got to look a little bit closer as when does the kingdom of God begin? Jesus just finished teaching on his death and he taught them the importance of taking up their cross. Do you remember that? Take up your cross. If you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you in front of my father. He taught them on taking up their cross and the ushering in of the kingdom of God will be ultimately understood after the resurrection. Now we know that some that he is witnessing to here, they will taste death. All of them will see the kingdom of God first, save one Judas, who we might even speculate was not even a disciple after all. They will see the risen Lord and they will see him ascend to the Father in the book of Acts, and then many of them would die for their faith in Jesus. The indwelt Holy Spirit will live and dwell within the body of Christ. Where this becomes a taste of the kingdom of God is found in the following verse that, in, that follows in verse 2. So let's read that. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Now here's a glimpse of the future. Because it has what we call eschatological overtones. Preacher, what in the world did you just say? Pointing to the end of the age. Meaning that these inner three had seen something that had to do with the consummation of all things at the end of the age. How Jesus Christ in His, in, in his glory will bring all things under subjection. Will bring all things into unity where there is chaos and discord in the world. Today the Lord Jesus will bring it together at the end of the age. But here is Jesus Near Caesarea Philippi, he takes his three disciples up, takes them up on a high hill. 
which I would say is very reflective of Matthew 18. Have you ever thought of that? What does Matthew 18 speak about church discipline and having two or three witnesses come with you to, to bear the account and to, to, and to lay validity to the account to bring two or more witnesses? And so in a way, Jesus is establishing the events by having witnesses with him. In fact, the usage of the phrase high mountain or high place often indicates in Scripture where there is coming special revelation. Now, where do we see this at in the Bible? Well, we see this with Moses at the burning bush when the Lord spoke to Moses there. I can't explain a bush that is burned and doesn't, not consumed. I can't explain it. And so the Lord is resting upon this burning bush and He is giving and he is giving Moses revelation. We see it on Mount Sinai when he receives the word from the Lord in the Decalogue and the Ten Commandments. We see it in John the Revelator who is on the Isle of Patmos. He is writing the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis, the uncovering, the unveiling of the Lord Jesus. And we certainly see it here. There's special revelation pinpointing to his fulfillment of the past and of the future. And by the way, historically, the Lord is in the business of revealing His will to us and has been since, since creation itself. Not new revelation, but an uncovering, a deeper understanding, if you will. In fact, I would say, I would challenge you to, to understand, if you will, to think about, to meditate on. The Lord wants you to know Him more and His Word more. So he was transfigured before them, changed before them. But what did they see? So we read it. Let's, let's look at it again. Mark 9 verse 3 says, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I mean, you could not launder these clothes to get them this white. It, it speaks of cleanliness. I, I can imagine this awesome vision that, that Peter has seen and then dictated to Mark. The clothes that Jesus wore gives the illumination of pure cleanliness. You can't get more cleaner than the Lord Jesus. You can't find that pinnacle of righteousness and cleanliness and purity. You can't find a higher degree other than the Lord Jesus here. And it shows it in this, in this account. And so it says this intently, intensely white, a symbol of eternal purity and eternal holiness. It illumined, it illumined so much that the inner three witnessed something that was beyond human words. But Mark gives it his best shot as he is given this gospel account by the apostle Peter. He says it is glistening and wide and dazzling. It's radiant like the sun, blinding almost. In indicating his eternal power, eternal holiness, and purity. Again, Peter was the apostle, historically, who dictated his account to, to Mark. And so, in effect, this is a first-hand account written. His clothes were so clean and, and pure that, that nothing on earth could get them this white. Not even bleach. Not even to be bleached this white. And so... Mark wants you to understand that this account is something otherworldly. 
So, it is not only a vision of the future, as I mentioned that word like that, eschatological. Not only is it a vision of the coming future, but it is a uh, fulfillment of that in the past, the prophetic past. You might say, well, preacher, how so? Let's look at the verse together, verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So here at the transfiguration is one Moses and Elijah. Now what do they represent? We see very quickly that Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant that was given to Israel, that all the families of the earth would be blessed and this covenant would come to pass through the person in the middle, the person of the Lord Jesus, and the words of the prophets, and the law. Moses being the holder of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, Jesus is the fulfillment of that law. Jesus is fulfillment of what these two have been preaching and people have been preaching for centuries. He is the fulfillment of the covenant. He is the fulfillment of the words of the prophets. And he is the fulfillment of the law itself. What these men saw on the hill was Jesus in his glory, displaying his holiness, his righteousness, and his purity. It's a wonderful picture of restoration. A beautiful picture of restoration, fulfillment, fulfillment, bringing to pass. Listen, I know that there are folks in here who have gone through some difficult times. We all have gone through some tough times. In this past year, I never would have thought that the world would have been shaken up like it is today. It's tough. Trouble's on every hand. I I like this song that has the word says we'll understand it better by and by. And we get a little glimpse of the understanding it better by and by here in this glorified Jesus because it gives us hope. But what exactly is the telos? What is the goal? What is the vision? What is the design of the transfiguration? What is the design of this? You, you know, you understand that we serve a God who is a great designer. You know that? Everything in God's economy has purpose and design. We see the purpose in both Elijah and Moses. They were both prophets. They were given the law and the word of the Lord to pass to the people. Not only are both men prophets, but they themselves have been transfigured in some way. Remember, Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the word of the Lord and he wanted to get a glimpse of the Lord. And so he says, well, I'll put you in the the cleft of the rock and you can see me as I pass by. And he comes down from the mountain in the presence of the people and they can tell that Moses had been with God. His face shone bright from being in his presence. Exodus 34 and 35 tells us that account. And then we see Elijah was transfigured or translated by a chariot of fire in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Translated, transformed. And no doubt, these disciples will be transfigured as well. It might not be here on the hill, but it certainly will come after the day of Pentecost. They will be transformed from men who walk on the earth 
still in their sin and brokenness to people who will be counted righteous in the eyes of God through the death and the resurrection of the Son of God. Let me say this, though. These men had not yet been saved, if you will, regenerate. But even so, you cannot get too close to Jesus without coming out a little different. Let me say that again. You can't get too close to Jesus without coming out a little different. So thank God for His glorious promises in Scripture that points to the end of the age. But I'm I'm thankful that, that I can look a little like Jesus down here. How about you? Not divine, but... A little walk a little closer to Jesus, not in this glorious way at the transfiguration, but walking in the righteousness of Jesus. Peter, James, and John, they were certainly shaken up and, and of what they saw, and they couldn't understand this fullness. They couldn't understand what they saw in all of his fullness. So what do they recommend? What shall we do? Jesus, what shall we do? And they said to Jesus, Rabbi, in verse 5, is it good that we are here, are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. They didn't know what to say. They were terrified. They were frightened. So put yourself in that place, standing in the glorified presence of Jesus. You would have been terrified. You would have been confused as well. We might say, wait, Peter, hold on a minute, Peter. Instead of making idols, memorials to Moses and Elijah, hold on, Peter, focus on the man in the middle. Sounds like something that we would say, don't it? Sounds like something super spiritual we might say. Simon Peter, what are you thinking? Focus on the man in the middle. And although that's true, seems to be a, a smaller theme in Scripture. Focus on the man in the middle, and the cross, and on the transfiguration and the hill. The man in the middle who is Jesus. Yes, it's true. But maybe it was fear that clouded their mind. Maybe it was fear that clouded their judgment. And I could probably stop right there and and say that's going to be part two next week, that fear clouds our judgment. That could be a sermon in and of itself, couldn't it? To, To be overcome with fear that we are crippled by it and clouds our judgment. Do you not think through this pandemic that fear has clouded our outreach and evangelism? It has. Now before we say, oh foolish, dull Peter, how many times do we do the same thing every day? Not that we are setting up little gods here or little idols here, but anything that comes between the worship of our Lord and It might not be the same person of Elijah and Moses that we set up and the same caliber as these these prophets, but, but we let people influence us who have no business with that privilege. Unbelievers who we want to see saved, yes, and escape the judgment of a holy God, but unbelievers influencing our thoughts and our mind and our decisions who have no business with that privilege. For instance, why do we let the things that we read in the printed press, in the internet, on social media, 
influence us the way that it does instead of the Word of God. I've seen people get in heated arguments over, over a post they have read on social media and have no problem let a theologically biblical heresy, if you will, something that, that would be defined by the Bible as heretical, let it pass. But we get up in arms about something we read on social media. We have no care whether the, whether the church down the road or over here might be preaching heresy. Here, here's, here's a thought. I'll, I'll move on from this. Here's a thought. If we read more, if we, if we read social media posts, you know where I'm going, don't you? If we read more social media posts in the then we do scripture, then we might want to reevaluate our spiritual health and who actually sits on the throne of our heart. Now, you notice that I was like Van Gogh here. I painted myself in that picture. Transfiguration, transformation, that's the word for today. And in the grand scheme of history and the future, my second point is Jesus will transfigure all things will transfigure all things. And what I mean to say by all things is exactly that. There's no hidden Greek understanding. I don't have to parse the, the verbs here for us to understand what all things mean. When I say all things, even the Greek would say, this is all things. Jesus even said it in Revelation 21 and verse 5. Jesus said, I will make all things new. Not some things. Right? He'll correct crooked, crooked government. He'll correct crooked churches. I mean, that's the whole purpose of the book of the Revelation, the, seven, the letters to the seven churches. But we get a glimpse of this transfigured Jesus, and we wait for the transfiguration of all things. Verse 7 says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud and said, Well, this is my beloved son. I want you to listen to him. In fact, I've got that underlined in my Bible, in my notes. Listen to him. It's not the first time that we have seen these words written. At the baptism of Jesus, we see the, the triune witness there. The Father from heaven with a voice that says, This is my beloved Son who is there. And the Holy Spirit uh, uh, represented by a dove that rested upon the Lord. And so this ain't the first time that we've, we've heard these, these words. This is my beloved Son at the baptism of, of Jesus. And now these words come from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So listen and follow Him. And I would imagine that being that James and John here and you know, they're standing, Peter, James, and John are standing, and they're witnessing the transfigured Jesus, and they see this cloud, and they hear this cloud, and no doubt if they have grown up in a home that taught the law, the Torah, the history, the writings, they would have made a note that this cloud would bring up memories that, the, that this cloud, a cloud led the children of Israel through the wilderness under the command of Moses, or the cloud that Elijah disappeared into that chariot of fire on. But when it is all said and done, when Moses and Elijah have gone to their respective place 
There was none standing but Jesus. And the people of old followed the words of the prophets. So now these men must listen to Jesus. The word of the Lord to the prophet was, listen, it's my prophet, listen to him. They either loved the word of the prophet or they hated the word of the prophet and they persecuted the prophet because of his word. And Jesus says, listen. This is my beloved son, the Lord says, listen to him. None is standing but Jesus. And suddenly, looking around, they saw, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus only. And they were coming down the mountain, and Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. It is then that you will understand. You will understand what I mean when I say some of you will not taste death until, until after the resurrection. And this to help them to understand. On verse 1, we encounter this verse. Jesus tells them to keep quiet until after the resurrection and they get a fuller understanding that the kingdom of God will begin to be realized after the resurrection and some there will not taste death until after that happens. Verse 10 says, So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Of course they did. Of course they didn't understand the scope of the resurrection or of that he was speaking of, or, or of himself, but they will. In fact, there are people today, scholars today, who are still debating about the historical bodily resurrection of our Lord. But I've got to tell you, based upon God's Word and what I know in God's Word, the tomb is empty. Verse 11, and they asked him, they said, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And this is what he told them. He said, Elijah did come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. See, Elijah on, seeing Elijah on the mountain, the disciples began to... We've been hearing the scribes say that this can't be Messiah because, because Elijah must come first. Or someone like Elijah... See, see, the the scribes begin to say this, and the disciples remembered it. Many Jewish people during the time uh, that uh, uh, during their time and before, they taught that Elijah will return to usher in age of the Messiah, and this is the one place that we note. And so we might want to note this in our Bibles too. Highlight it because this is the one place where Jesus agrees with the scribes. And why does he agree with the scribes? Well, because it is Scripture. It's God's Word. This is the place where he actually agrees. But it is not the physical Elijah that comes, but one that would be like him. And we find the similarities between Elijah and John the baptizer, who was the forerunner for the Messiah. In fact, Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. At least I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. We find that in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. And what did John the baptizer come to do? to prepare the hearts of the people to receive Messiah, to prepare them to receive the the Messiah and to turn their hearts back to God. 
Now, what we must understand is that Elijah is not the focal point. Some people get lost in this. No, well, Elijah did not come. You have to understand that the focal point here of the passage and or the teaching is not Elijah. It is the suffering that must occur to the Son of Man, namely Jesus Christ. So in these verses, we see a glimmer of reconciliation. So I want to talk about not only transfiguration, transformation, I want to talk about reconciliation in just a few moments. See, if Jesus has truly made you new, and you're a new creature in Christ, the Bible says that the old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Then that means all things in our lives, all things in our lives should show resemblance of reconciliation. Because we are in Christ, we ought to be ably equipped to build bridges that were once burned. And I'm not meaning physical bridges, as you know. Relationships should be able to be built back again. In the body of Christ, there is not a bridge that is so burnt that cannot be rebuilt through forgiveness. And if Christ is, trans, if Christ is our transfiguration and our reconciliation, marriages should be mended, relationships should be nurtured, people should be able to be discipled, Making things new can be as powerful here today as it will be in the future. There is no greater story than to see some, uh, a group of people, maybe one or two people, who have held a grudge for many years and there have been uh, unforgiveness and there have been animosity and anger and jealousy and envy. And you see these two people come together under the banner of Jesus and they build that relationship on the solid rock of Christ. There is nothing more beautiful than that in the body of Christ than to see that other than a person coming to know Jesus as Lord. So it can be as powerful today as it will be in the future, as Revelation 21.5 says that he will make all things new. Reconciliation, and here's maybe an understanding of this, reconciliation is changing for the better. A relationship between two or more people. And theologically, it refers to the change of relationship between God and man. And we are naturally children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3 says, and, and are naturally children of wrath. But, uh, but we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, Romans 5 and verse 10. And because of this death, because of this death, because we are born again in Christ, the Christ follower's relationship with God is changed for the better. We are now able to have fellowship with Him, 1 John 1 and verse 3. Whereas before we could not. The problem of sin separates us from God. But I want you to know that that has been addressed and removed in the cross of Christ. So just a way to recap before we close. The transfiguration of Jesus is a glorious foreshadow. It shows us things to come. That there will be a time when the glory of Jesus, the light of the sun will be the light of that city. The glory of Christ will shine forevermore. 
and His people will worship Him forever. Secondly, the transfiguration shows us that Jesus will transfigure all things and make all things new. Is that your hope today? In Christ alone, my hope is found. Is that your hope? If not, I would like to pray for you today. Let's do that. Let's pray.